Hey there, just a very quick note at the top of this episode of Men Behaving Better to say that this episode was recorded prior to the death of George Floyd and the subsequent protests. And that changes everything, and it should change everything. It should change a conversation like this, and it should change a series like Men Behaving Better, when Men Behaving Better is essentially at the source of what we're seeing. And the cause of what's going on in the States and across the world right now. So I've made the decision with season three of this podcast to focus on race and bring on people of different ethnicities to talk about their experiences and how we can all improve, no matter how inverted commas woke we think we are, how we can initiate this change that needs to happen. We're in the Me Too generation, so I have to be very gentle. You wouldn't have your job if you weren't beautiful. It's very sad. I wouldn't choose to be alone. <laughs> this is a journey. Love tweeted Saturday saying, although I wasn't one of his victims, I was eternally banned by CAA for speaking out against Harvey Weinstein. New dimension, new value. For years, men have been getting a whole pizza delivered to them every day. And now women just want half of the pizza. And men are like... What, why the fuck am I getting half a pizza all of a sudden? There seems to, be, seems to be vital signs of people rushing to take offence to catcalling and wolf whistling. Now, the only people who are taking offence to this are extreme feminists. It's a genius thing that the patriarchy have done. They have made gender-based violence a thing that women deal with. And it's not their problem, it's men's problem. Please, uh, would you mind saying that again? One day I saw a guy, he was trying to take a picture of my skirt. I was getting out of the car with bags and a dog. I didn't actually realise until the picture was in the paper. Someone printed this shit. This sort of behaviour, we have to adopt a zero tolerance policy. I think the world's gone mad. Somebody brushed your knee 15 years ago. This is complete nonsense. Now, it's not doing the reputation of Parliament any good. And I can't believe that women are being so wimpish these days. Oh, my God. Feminism is not about females being powerful. It's about redressing a balance and it's about equality. And feminism is a very necessary thing for young men to have. And if you want to know, if you think you're a feminist, let a woman pay for your dinner and see how you feel about that. If you're cool with that, you're a feminist. If you're not, you need to look at yourself. From the Irishman Abroad Podcast Network, this is Men Behaving Better. And our guest today is Matt Pinkett. Episode six of season two, the final episode of season two. I'm so happy with how this season has gone. And this episode with Matt Pinkett is kind of the perfect ending and where the discussion went in terms of these one to one chats, as opposed to the live episodes that we've been doing in season one. We've taken the conversation towards what Matt Pinkett specialises in, which is rethinking masculinity in education. He has written an incredible book or co-authored an incredible book entitled Boys Don't Try. You can seek that out and get that anywhere on any platform via Amazon or Kindle or Apple Books. And I strongly urge you to do so. What that book does is comprehensively covers how we view boys, the stigma that surrounds boys and their ability to make effort for start of for a start of things and how some really shocking statistics surrounding boys in education Matt proposes other strategies and other ways of addressing boys and reaching boys which is you know a challenge that a lot of educators face and 
I mean, if the challenge is facing educators, how is it for the boys that are being written off in a lot of cases or being told that that's just the testosterone or that's just boys being boys? Well, I won't delay any further. I'll let Matt Pinkett explain it because he does it way better than me. But this is a one of a kind discussion. Please go back and listen to our previous episodes. If this is your first episode of Men Behaving Better or rate, comment and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you're getting your podcasts. Or better still, why not support the show and listen to hundreds of other episodes we've produced across the years by going to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. And there, for the price of a pint, you can access absolutely everything over on patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. Matt Pinkett, it's fantastic to have you on Men Behaving Better in this second season. And you're somebody I thought of when we started the show in the very first place. And didn't manage to get you on in season one but here we are in season two with your own book published uh, Boys Don't Try Rethinking Masculinity in Schools and uh, it's a book that has been snapped up and lauded by educators up and down the country as nearly a guidebook a lot of schools using it uh, as their guidebook for how to foster a new approach to boys were you expecting that or did you kind of go into it with low expectations so when the book first first came out i knew we were onto something i knew that we'd written something that nobody had ever written before a lot of the things about boys that had been written provided these kind of snake oil remedies or these kind of quick wins mm. quite often with little kind of scientific basis for what was being argued um, a lot of it was about reaching boys by playing up to stereotypes and certainly we knew that that, that wasn't the way to go but you know that that kind of masculine imposter syndrome I mean I'm not an academic you know I, when, when the book came out I was just uh well, not just, but I, I was a full-time English teacher, you know. But my co-author had faith. He said to me, he said to me, he said, this book is going gonna, gonna to change change things. And he was right. I mean, I remember it went into the top 100 Amazon bestsellers um, at number 99. I was pleased about that. Yeah. Pushed Julia Donaldson out, so that was good. Um <laughs> But, you know, it was, yeah. And, you know, 15,000 copies later in, in the world of education, that's a lot. It's um, a lot. And it, you know what? It contains so much. We, we will struggle to get through everything that you cover in this. It's, it's sprawling in that even though it's still, you know, a dense little book, there's just so much in it. So I thought maybe the best place to start is the dismissal, right? The dismissal of boys is the first thing that we I think we should all address and that maybe talking to you about is the best thing. The dismissal that goes on on a daily basis. Boys will be boys. Oh, look at him with all the testosterone in him now explaining away his violent behavior and the dismissal of boys as being unable to prosper in school in the sense that there is a belief and a stereotype that that's more of a girly thing. Now, a lot of listeners will know that right off the bat, but others may not. Maybe you could talk a little bit about when you f first started to recognise the dismissal as a kind of ingrained systemic thing. Yeah, OK. So when did I 
first start noticing that there was just something a little bit off with the way teachers were with boys. I think it was when I first started actually um, as a teacher. Um, I was one of few males in a largely female English department. And I just noticed that a few of the comments directed towards me were a little bit off. Um, perhaps I was being sensitive, but, you know, people would say things to me like, um, oh, muscles, come and help me lift this uh, <laughs> lift this box. Or I remember going into classrooms um, and saying hello to a class. Uh, and, and, and another teacher, they would literally mock my deep voice. Or I remember once we found this book in the staff room, and it was a gimmicky book. It was called Banned Poems for Boys, and it was one of these awful, awful books that tries to appeal to boys. And one of these poems was called The Minnow, right? Mm. <laughs> and it's a, it's a poem about a boy on holiday in Ibiza with the lads or somewhere like that. And he's, um, I think he's in the sea. And a group of girls come to the shore and start beckoning him out of the sea to come and say hello to him. The problem is he fancies one of these girls. And the mm. minnow is a <laughs> a rather clumsy metaphor for... What's going to happen downstairs, what, yeah. Yeah, what, what's happening to his appendage at this point. And we're all laughing. You know, it was, um, we're, we're all laughing about it in the staff room. And then I remember I said, but do you know what? I said, you know, I, I know we're laughing, but for some of the boys we teach, this... You know, the amount of pornography that boys and girls watch in their teens. Um, I said, this could be a real issue. And um, there was this kind of stunned silence. And this person, who I will not name, just said, um, yeah, but you would say that. You're a bloke. All you think about is dick. (laughs) A member of staff said that to you. (laughs) Yeah, and I just thought... Okay, so this is um, this is interesting, and then I just I guess after that I just became hypersensitive. You know, my my line of thought was if, if this is what I'm dealing with, and it, it's only minor things, but how many teachers are kind of reinforcing these kind of attitudes day in day out, mm. drip feeding mm. them in? And so I started writing about it, and I started reading about it, and. The reading originally was blog posts, but then it became research um, and journals. And I was just stunned by the wealth of information out there um, that suggests that, indeed, teachers do have a deficit model of, of male achievement when it comes to schooling. Um, and, that's, and often that's, it's quite unconscious. But. Yeah, and that's that's really kind of the jump off, right, for for this uh, new way of approaching this. It seems kind of bizarre, <laughs> but it is it is new for teachers to accept their latent bias because there is an older version of teachers as these saintly beings that have no bias whatsoever and uh, should be consulted on all matters in terms of fairness. But I guess it's, it's also related to our evolving view of leadership and parenting in that I don't remember my parents ever apologising to me, ever. At at no point did they ever say, I got that wrong. Guys, I have no idea where the fuck we are. (laughs) Well, that's it, it, isn't it? Teachers find it hard to be vulnerable, I think, and confronting the fact that actually, do you know what? I I might think that certain pupils I teach are less good than others mm. simply by virtue of the fact that they have a penis or they're black 
or they have a special need or they're from a low uh, income background. Teachers find it very difficult because, as you say, they're meant to espouse the saintly virtues that they're trying to nurture and develop in their in their students. And teachers find it very hard to confront that. Yeah. And so y you bring up the first thing, one thing there that, you know, I do want to address out the gate. And that is about the, uh, you know, the class system. That's something that I was new to moving here in a lot of ways, because in Ireland, it's it's different. It isn't that there is no class system, but it is different. We are, you know, a former colony and the stratification or the clarity of the different classes, it's blurred a lot more so than here. But so, you know, that that taking that as read when I come here and I'm suddenly made aware of exactly how important it is, how it informs so many things. I guess I'd never really committed thought to how much the education system is about the belief that your position as a working class person, that your attendance at school is your admission that you aspire to be more than that. And the kind of bias and kind of there's something quite disgusting about that. Uh, you address this really clearly in the book. Maybe you can articulate that for our listeners and how how that's that's quite wrong. And it informs why boys of that social demographic get dismissed as well. Yeah, I do think that um, I say a sentence I write in the book is that, um, you know, our education system is, is centred on middle class values. You hear teachers saying things like, you know, I've, I've got a revision guide for you all. It's only three pounds. Well, actually, only three pounds. Three pounds is a lot of money it's for lot, some yeah. kids. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, we get exam questions that ask kids to write about their favourite holiday. Well, some mm. kids have never been on holiday. Mm -hmm. um, teachers mock or, you know, or, or reprimand kids who come in with junk food, neglecting the fact that actually, all right, a packet of Space Raiders is far cheaper than, um, you know, an avocado sandwich. And I do think that the, the system is implicitly or inherently, sorry, middle class. And I think I think it's wrong. Um, one other thing that kind of I've, I've, I've spoken about before and something that's troubled me is that in a recent survey or a survey from a year or two ago, in which teachers were asked, are they middle class, working class or upper class? 78% of teachers said that they're middle class. Now, I I got the ump about that and I said, this disappoints me. And and, and the thing that all the teachers were, were, were replying to me, the, the thing that teachers were saying to me was, well, of course I'm middle class because now I'm I earned this wage and I've been to university. And that really upset me because I have been to university, right? And I own earn a teacher's wage. But I have still chosen, okay, to hold on to a working class identity. Why would I suddenly start earning more than 30 grand a year and then choose to reject, all right, my working classes? Why would I... The moment you earn a certain wage, you choose to forego all your values and mm. your history. And, it, and not, it's not just about rejecting your, um, it, you know, 
family members. Mm. You know, Diane, Diane Ray wrote a book called Miseducation in which she says, you know, as a working class person going to university, you're in this kind of liminal state where you don't belong anywhere. You've left the estate and so you're no longer working class and yet you're an imposter, all right, mm. amongst some of the most finely educated and upper class, middle class people in the country. And so you, you enter this kind of liminal state and it worries me that teachers... Uh, and people generally can be so quick to identify as middle class when they come from working class backgrounds. And the language that we use is always about escape. It's always about rising up, mm. right? Leaving your class behind. And you know, I don't know why middle classness has become something we should aspire to. And the fact that, you know, 78% of teachers identify as middle class. I'm sure 78% of those teachers didn't come from middle class backgrounds. Of course not. Um, of course not. Yeah. You know, and, and so I think it does that that's worry the, me. Uh, that's the. Uh, what you were describing there is also uh, a different view of what those identities mean and their their static nature that they believe that those that a lot of those people believe that you do move from it, that it isn't something that is your narrative, that mm. your your story is not this. It's I was once this and the storyline that you're fed or that we're certainly led to believe is that you elevated yourself from that status, yes. right? Yeah. That is a tricky one, right? And a lot of what you talk about in the book is really, it's really quite hard to get into because they're not black and white issues. These are blurry, sticky, tricky things. But I, I guess I wanted to talk about, I guess, misbehavior is the one that a lot of our listeners will be tuning in to hear about, because when we, you know, we label this episode what we have and I say to people that I'm going to be talking to you and that you've written this book, they're looking for help with their difficult young men. They're going, well, is there another approach here? You mentioned earlier about, oh, a, a boy isn't into reading. He's into football. So why don't we give him books about football? <laughs> yeah, what, yeah. What, can you uh, kind of address that to start with? And then we'll maybe get towards violence after that. Uh, OK. Um, wait, wait, what do you want me to address? Sorry. Yeah, so just the idea that if you're the, the kind of the quitting that we do when a boy isn't openly and honestly into reading off the bat, the danger of going uh, hobbyizing what he's yeah. into reading and making it all about Roy the Rovers or whatever. Yeah, there's a real, there's such a problem with that. It happens all the time in schools. And, you know, I've been guilty of it too. Um, you've got, um, I hate the phrase, but a boy-heavy class. Right? Mm. I've got a load of boys here. What I need to do then is make the learning relevant to them. Mm -hmm. So I've got a boy-heavy class, and what teachers tend to think, and I've, I've, I've thought it too, is I've got to make the learning relevant to them. And so what happens is, you know, teachers will find themselves teaching a poetry lesson, and, you know, rather than teaching them Keats, Wordsworth... Tennyson, um, they're, they're teaching them Eminem or Stormzy lyrics because they think, well, this is a way to engage the boys. You'll get teachers, oh, I'm speaking as an English teacher here, I've got to teach, I've got to teach boys metaphor. So what I'll do is we'll sit down and we'll watch um, 
you know, a game of football for 90 minutes and we'll write down all the metaphors that the commentators use. Mm, mm. Um, and, you know, years later or months later, you say to the kids, do you remember what a metaphor is? They can't remember. They can remember the fun lesson where they listen to Storms in M&M, <laughs> yeah. all right? Yeah. Or where they watched, they spent three weeks watching a 90-minute football <laughs> match, right? They remember yeah. all that, yeah. but they don't remember the learning. I think this kind of, I think it's, boys will get bored, mm. all right? Like, yeah, of course. If you spend all your life talking about football, playing football, playing football on, you know, FIFA on your PlayStation, and then you get into class, weeks of uh, of metaphor lessons based around flimsily or clumsy. Okay, it might be fun for the first lesson or two. If we agree that we shouldn't try and over-cater to the interests, what are the alternatives to doing that? Because I know there's loads of teachers that are like, well, that's all very well and good, but what do we do instead? Mm. I mean, all all students, regardless of gender, respond to being challenged. And I think too often with boys, what the problem is, there isn't a sufficient level of challenge in many cases because they're boys and people are spending too long trying to make things relevant for them. And boys and girls are perceptive. You know, mm. they know they know when a teacher is pandering to them and actually you know it's it's an insult to their intelligence and so you know the research picture and also anecdotally shows that teachers who work on you know developing their subject knowledge and, and really becoming experts in their field are able to push boys harder and um, particularly this needs to occur in schools or settings where people are streamed or set by their ability 60% of students in, in what people call the bottom set, 60% of those pupils are male. And that's that's not because boys are stupid. It's Again, it's based on perceptions. Um, Becky Francis has done a lot of research on this. Um, boys are just simply misallocated. Um, by converse, uh, or conversely, top sets, 60% of students there tend to be girls. But anyway, back in, in these bottom sets of, of mainly boys, again, what you get a lot of is is pandering. Also, what you don't get in those bottom sets in schools is expert teachers. It tends to often be the case that newly qualified teachers or teachers who are simply less experienced and, and less effective at teaching um, get put with these bottom sets that, that tend to be boy heavy, when actually what these boys really need is the best teachers in the school. Yeah. Um, often what hap often what happens is when you're a good teacher you're kind of rewarded with having the top set um you know oh you're 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 a very clever teacher you'll be able to really challenge those those kids in the top set but actually the research shows that those kids in the top set they will thrive anyway they will yeah. thrive anyway and there's um, less there's less actual trying to reach them as kind of funnel them in some ways right exactly exactly so we just need to challenge challenge our boys and make them feel that we value them as people who are capable of intellectual endeavour and discussion. Right. And well, well, let me ask you this then, because the challenge is often the problem, right? And I'm speaking to parents listening to this as well who know that, uh, like last night I talked to a basketball coach, a kind of a former NBA player who 
kind of devoted his life post-NBA to setting up an academy which taught the game in a kind of new way, an innovative strategy towards less instructive and more, I guess it's more child-led in that. Mm. He was explaining to me that the, the theory was to allow them to arrive at the conclusion that their technique was off rather than having someone poke them in the shoulder and say your elbow sticking out when you're shooting the ball. And in that way, they don't grow to resent the person directing them and they feel ownership of the new path. And that to me is the most fascinating bit of the whole book in this shoulder to shoulder talking, the understanding that a lot of boys won't look, won't like being looked directly in the eye and told what they're doing wrong. Can you talk a little bit about that and how how you view how you view and reached that point? Like you reached a point where you were like, actually, this this works better. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to. I think I need to say that actually, this kind of discovery learning, or or as it's often called in education, inquiry based learning, whereby um, the emphasis is on the student rather than the teacher, and students are encouraged to discover things for themselves. I mean, in terms of the research picture, I think direct instruction which is kind of the opposite of that actually telling kids what they need to do giving them the information and then letting them play with it that is far more effective i think that project-based learning or discovery-based learning can be interesting but certainly i would you know my educational philosophy is actually if we want kids to know something then we need to just tell them it because we are after all the experts yeah and basketball uh, is different yeah, yeah, exactly. However, in in answer to your question um, about the shoulder to shoulder chats, um, I do think that's really important, particularly with boys. I mean, there is actually no research on this, but anecdotally, a thing you often hear is boys don't like eye contact. Um, certainly, I can see that that's a a plausible assumption to make if we consider the fact that boys um, we don't talk to boys so much um, in intimate settings or about their emotions and so actually as a result of that kind of sociological behavior um, boys are just less used to being one-on-one with somebody Mm. um, with eye contact so yeah in the book we talk about um, and this is based on a few suggestions by teachers, these kind of shoulder to su- shoulder chats, you know, so actually getting a boy and saying, right, we're going to, you know, you've got this problem here. Um, you've fallen out with your science teacher or, or you're struggling with this at home or you're anxious about this. Let's go for a walk. Um, and actually we find that that, that can be really effective. So there's no kind of that discomfort um, that, that, that eye contact can bring about isn't there. But actually it's just two people walking side by side um, and, and often teachers find that boys um, really respond well to, to that approach. But of course, that's some boys, you know, some boys are, are quite capable of <laughs> of having one to one chats um, mm. where eye contact is, is a part of that. But, yeah, these kind of shoulder to shoulder chats can be really effective. And it is important to bear in mind, actually, that when we're talking about boys in terms of attainment and how they do at school the gender of a teacher does not matter and actually boys do not care 
about the gender of a teacher, apart from when they have a, a personal issue, often relating to sex or or, 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 or the body. Um, and boys, the research shows, would prefer actually a male teacher in that instance. So I think if there are any you know male teachers out there listening, then they should be aware of that. And these shoulder shoulder chats can be a really nice way into to, to bringing bringing boys out of themselves. Well, I grew up in Ireland, as I said, and I don't know a boy in my class who didn't have an issue with sex and uh, women yeah. uh, and paranoia and uh, a conservative kind of guilt uh, yeah. that was passed down and just a discomfort in general and that it didn't really matter what the teacher was or did or who they were there was there was an issue and there was something in the air that uh, I always look back at with real conflicted emotions. I do remember witnessing a teacher being touched and I remember lewd comments. I don't I'm sure that there's other lads listening that can remember this as well. Some of the figures that you presented on this in terms of essential sexual harassment in schools yeah. were really, really shocking. Were you amazed that people didn't know how frequent this was? Because when I read it, while I was shocked, I was like, mm, I guess with exactly how how much more sex is in the public eye, it makes sense. Yeah, it's really interesting you say that. I kind of am surprised that people are shocked um, because, you know, for me as a teacher and uh, and as a male student, it's kind of sexual objectification of my female class members, but also of my female teachers um, when I was a student was just, just kind of routine, I guess. And certainly I, as a teacher, have... I've lost count of the times I've seen boys be inappropriate to, to female teachers. Um, but I do think there is still this issue of that people don't want to talk about it or even they don't realise that we need to be talking about it because it's become so normalised. I mean, if we're thinking about teachers, I mean, when I you know, was doing the research for this chapter of sex and sexism um, in the book, I did just ask on Twitter if anybody had experienced sexual harassment at the hands of students. And I went to bed that night and I woke up the next morning and I had over a 100 direct messages on my Twitter account from female teachers telling me all manner of horrific stories about the, yeah, the sexual harassment they've received. You know, some of them from kids as, as young as eight years old. And actually no. in the opening of the chat, yeah, in the opening of the chapter i i i um there's 10 or 12 kind of little snapshots from these stories and it does happen um i think one of the main problems is is actually teachers higher up the school so lots of these stories were you know so a boy might say to his female teacher miss do you take it up the ass right and he is then removed from the classroom by a member of the senior leadership team, normally a male member of the senior leadership team. And then five minutes later, after he's had a chat outside, he's put back in the classroom. And that young female newly qualified teacher 
has got to somehow get herself through the rest of a lesson facing a boy who's just asked her if, you know, she takes <laughs> takes out the arse, you know. Um, and it's just not fair. Um, it also explains yeah. a lot. Like, it really does when you think about it that, you know... Uh, like the the charity partner of this podcast is a place called Jigsaw and uh, yep. it's a Dublin based mental health centre specifically for young people. And the more I looked into it, and the more we thought about making them the charity partner of Irishman Abroad and Irishman Abroad podcast, the more it made absolute sense that we're seeing all these guests and all these prominent people on the show with significant mental health issues later in life and at no point do we actually go well are we going to prevent the next generation from experiencing this too and Mm. surely the answer then is to go beneath go go down and equip them with the tools they need to not face into these things and to be ready for when they don't feel absolutely brilliant all the time or when they experience loss or grief that they're ready and know, oh, this is normal and my thoughts are not who I am. Similarly, what you're saying here and what the book does, I find, is that it goes, look, you're looking at a world where a Me Too movement kind of crashes like a tidal wave and Mm -hmm. we're looking at taking out the Weinsteins. But are we looking at going to the boy who says something inappropriate? That it's a wrap on the knuckles or you're done. That's it. And, you know, again, we say in the book, schools have a home of, you know, they have a, a, a homophobia policy. They have a racism policy, but you don't see the sexism policy too often. Um, is there even and, one? Like, I've never, I don't know. I don't have a boy no, in secondary I mean, school, I mean, but is there I mean, one the in your school? Edu- in schools I've um, had you experience know with, yeah, yeah there, there isn't one. And so if you look at, you know, um, so some of the statistics yeah, in 2014, 59% of girls aged between 13 and 21 said they'd experienced some form of sexual harassment at school or college. Um, in 2017, almost a quarter of female students at mixed-sex schools have had unwanted physical touching of a sexual nature. That is unbelievable. Almost a quarter of girls, you know. And also, so, Matt, let me say this. How many wouldn't admit it. Like, well, that's that, it. That number, I mean, that's, that number is shocking, but yeah, that number is surely and, higher. And also, um, it, when it comes to sexual harassment, also, how many girls are realising that they're being sexually harassed? Because mm. um, I would argue that, you know, a wolf whistle across a playground, mm. you know, I would say that's a form of harassment, you know. Uh, and the Department for Education have outlined um, exactly what constitutes what they call sexism, but schools haven't picked up on it. So, you know, things like telling sexual stories, making lewd comments, even making sexual remarks about um, somebody's clothes, deliberately brushing against someone. You know, even when boys, you know, grab each other's private parts in in a locker room as a joke, you know, all of these things, the Department for Education considers to be sexist or sexually inappropriate. And yet schools don't have these things in their policy. And so teachers, you know, when they hear a wolf whistle or they hear a boy, 
laughing inappropriately about masturbation or pornography and making the girls or the boys sat next to him feeling really embarrassed. The teachers don't have a concrete set of guidelines as to exactly what can be sanctioned and what cannot. And so teachers are at a loss too, you know. Let me ask you this, Matt. How much, though, is the the policy of let's not talk about it, let's not have a policy, how much of that is down to, well, actually, who here wants to take that assembly? Uh, <laughs> and yeah. how much are we... Like, I remember my cousin Joe uh, working at a hospital in London where he was doing cancer research uh, with a bunch of all kinds of different nationalities, races and creeds. And they had a seminar where they were told what was racist speech and hate speech or racial stereotyping. And these people, to a large extent, were straight out of college and pretty green. Uh, And he can remember sitting in this classroom and the, the guy giving the seminar going, here's an example of some stereotypes. The French are smelly. And the people in the classroom were writing down the stereotypes going <laughs> German, super organized, a little bit anally yeah. attre- attentive. And yeah. uh, people are putting up their hand and going, sir, what, what was that? Anally retentive. What does that mean? <laughs> they're, they're like... <laughs> <laughs> there is a concern in this, yeah. as funny as this yeah. sounds, that you're uh, and you'd have to say that there must have been a call made somewhere that actually writing that policy could open the floodgates, because then, as you know, from the crack that used to be had in school, the fun was to ridicule the law. So when you start writing into the law, use of the term boobs is off limits that like that's going to be fucking pandemonium trying to to do that so how how, it would how be, do we do it it would i mean it would be pandemonium i guess but think what it would do for those girls you know the girl you know these girls that are routinely being you know harassed and abused and harangued at school mm. um, you, you know there might be an onslaught of boys all right you know the idiots thinking oh okay so we're not allowed to walk whistle we're going to keep doing it okay well the schools need to come down hard on it but you know that's teaching those girls at 11 years old maybe even younger if it if it mm. happens in primary school when a boy wolf whistles at me right that is not right because my school has told me at eight years old that that is not right and when i'm 32 years old or when i'm 48 years old or when i'm 16 years old and i'm walking down the street and two men in a white van decide to drive slowly next to me wind down the window and shout lewd comments i know then that that is not right and i can you know i'm empowered to you know call the police or tell somebody about it and i think that's School. If there's going to be an onslaught of sexist behaviour as a result of having a um, a behaviour policy, then schools need to work bloody hard to to come down hard on it. But yeah, and I I'll, guess that's I'll, the thing, right? That the the hard work is actually consulting and getting together to go. Yeah. Well, how is this best worded to avoid the pandemonium that I'm imagining? Exactly. But also, we again we mustn't underestimate the boys. Boys. You know, when boys are educated about this, you know, I've, I've done work in previous schools I've worked at where I've taught, I've, I've had sessions with the boys about this. 
and we've seen um, a noticeable change. We've seen boys policing each other, mm. you know? Mm. So, yeah, so you know, give them a, a boy, bit of credit. A, a, yeah, you give them, and boys will police each other. And boys, <laughs> the majority of boys want to be respectful to women, all right? But unfortunately, all of the education that they've had, the, their informal education is about objectifying women. So the moment schools introduce policies and start talking about this stuff, rather than being embarrassed about it or being reluctant to admit that there is a problem, then the sooner, the sooner we can tackle the issue and, 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 make, and make strides, strides for good. So, so a big part of it is uh, what you stress in your writing is modeling, uh, showing, as you said earlier, tender masculinity, uh, yeah. appropriate leadership and how actually being considerate, kind and, you know, evolved are good things and yeah. that that does go in. The problem that a lot of people are facing is that boorish behavior, whatever about that, I mean, that's that's always going to be in the world. There's always going to be yeah. louts outside of school who represent a kind of never ask for permission attitude. But there's always going to be violence. I mean, violence, uh, this this thing that you address as being explained away by testosterone and, yeah. and that oversimplification of where the violence emanates from and uh, the violence towards oneself. I mean, I'm someone who's been pretty open about a period of self-harming that I had where I was doing a thing that you described, which was dusting up my knuckles on whatever I could. And yep. it was a way of just relieving the stress that I was going through at the time. And I don't think I even counted it as uh, self-harm. I just saw it as venting. You say that that's really common in, in schools. You see that a lot. And one other thing that I thought was uh, new to me was the over-exercising as a form of self-harm. Can you talk a little <laughs> yeah. bit about these two things? Yeah, of course. So um, so with self-harm, we tend to, certainly in schools, use that word self-harm and we think of cutting, yeah, cutting the wrists. And that is a common form of self-harm, um, but it's it's certainly not the most common um, form of self-harm in boys. Boys will self-harm. The most common way that boys self-harm is substance abuse. Now, that's interesting in itself. You know, we tend to think of those year 10, 11 boys, 15, 16 years old who have started smoking, um, you know, smoking, smoking weed or even cigarettes, you know, mm. as it's just naughty behavior. But I think we need to reconsider that. Um, and boys that are drinking, actually, that could be that could be self-harm. But also, yeah, the, the classic one, um, punching walls, um, that's really high up there for boys. And I remember as a kid myself, you know, you'd, you'd have, um, you know, you'd punch a wall um, at a party at the weekend, perhaps, because you were angry about something. And you'd come in, and I, and I still see it now with boys, they come into school at, you know, 15 years old, and they wear these bruised knuckles like trophies, you know, like this kind of trophies of, honor. Of, their yeah. Yeah, of their masculinity. But actually... You know, of course, there will be boys that are doing it 
some strange form of macho posturing, but I'd argue even that's an issue in itself that's worth looking into. But, you know, how many of these boys are, are punching walls, um, not just to scare other people, but because they're angry and they're angry with themselves and they just need to feel that, 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 that surge of pain as a, as a release. And I, I do think that, again, too often in schools, what happens when a boy punches a wall is that rightly so he's told off he, he could be damaging property and he's certainly going to be intimidating other people but in the book i say but also you need you do need to follow up you know just as just as if you were to find a girl with a razor in her bag or you know or, or with a razor in her hand and she's attempting to cut her wrist just as you would follow that up with with, with you know with all sorts of um due care yeah due care you need to, you know, rather than just telling these boys off that punch walls, and it's not just punching walls, it's actually fighting. Are there boys in your school that are repeatedly getting in fights? Because that's self-destructive behaviour. And, mm. and you do need, the teachers do need to consider, okay, he's naughty, but actually maybe he's self-harming too. And maybe there's a, a deeper issue there that, that we need to look at. Well, the um, way you address that in the book uh, really... Uh, even as a story in and of itself is one that I think needs to be told. The the tale that you tell of being ridiculed in public yeah. and, I, you know, I know the full story because I think I heard you tell it in another interview. The retaining of the slight, the humiliation that you felt being ridiculed yeah. in a kebab shop by a bunch of toughs, uh, mm. crying, returning to your house and retaining the the anger and the sense of I'm due vengeance and justice here. I will get my own back roaming the streets that night in the hope of finding them, thankfully not finding them because God knows what could have happened. But that that in and of itself, it, there's so much in that story because look, that's a pattern that so many really sad stories emerge from a thing happened. Yeah, I was mortified. I looked to right the wrong and suddenly a knife was produced. I mean, that story, when you go around and do your talks uh, and mm. you visit other schools, surely that comes up because that to me needs to be part of the education system. Yeah. Um, <sighs> We, we, as teachers, we tell boys, don't we? We tell boys, um, be the bigger man and walk away. When, when faced with violence, walk away. And the boy walks away and we leave it. We, can, you know, we might even congratulate him. But actually walking away is a hugely, hugely emasculating mm. experience because you fail to do what, what all the, the kind of the superheroes that you watched as a kid growing up, all the action here, you failed to do what they did, which was get, defeat the bad guys, you know? Yeah, get um, justice. Yeah. And I said about a story, you know, I got humiliated and I said, I've said recently that I went to bed that night having been humiliated um, and I went be to bed safe and well in my own bed but feeling humiliated. And I said, you know, right then, I would have rather woken up in an A&E hospital bed, bruised, battered and broken, but at least having done something. That 
is how fragile or how messed up my masculinity is. And it, you know, when I do these talks and I tell that story, I get lots of um, men coming up to me afterwards. And, and that story is always the one with re that resonates with them. They say, yeah, you know, I was on a night out with my girlfriend once and, um, you know, a guy was trying to chat her up. I, I stepped in and, and he, he made me look like an idiot. He threatened to, to beat me up. And in front of my girlfriend, I, I just looked scared and I walked away. And, I, and I've never forgotten that kind of that sense of failure. That those kind of stories come out again and again. It seems that lots of men hold on to these, these moments where they failed to live up. Um, to masculine expectations of physical force and strength. And Anthony Ellis, uh, a researcher who's done lots of work into violence, um, he, he says that this is a problem, you know, because, you know, he, his work shows that actually these men who, who suffer these moments of humiliation or this feeling of failure will then, at later dates, often seek to rectify that problem. Sure, uh, may maybe years later. Yeah, by seeking. So, 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 you know, at university, I was getting into lots of lots of trouble, and and I and I sincerely um, and strongly believe it was because I was trying to make up for that for time that. in in that that night in the kebab shop where I got humiliated. Let's say we do get into that and we do model that in schools and we tell that story and we actually address and focus uh, some energy in whatever social studies class requires this, there'll still be sport. There'll still be sport. And, yeah. you know, my heroes like Michael Jordan, there's a documentary coming out about yeah. the, the Bulls this weekend. Yes. And you know, I'm desperate to see it. But Mike came out in the press yesterday and said, I'm going to come off as a horrible person here just so that everybody's ready for this, because mm. he was, inverted commas, the ultimate alpha dog. And, yeah. you know, this the stories are legendary uh, from Roy Keane to A.P. McCoy, that if yep. you slighted them, they retained it. They Alfie Gunner Halland your knee seasons later because mm. the 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 memory and the uh, position needed to be protected as the king of the hill. You do devote some time to talking about how we coach and representing that to young fellas uh, mm. in a different way and trying to reach them in a different way. But I always kind of feel that sport, to a large extent, can scupper a lot of these noble efforts because oftentimes it is the biggest bastard that ends up as the top man in the league or of the sport yeah it's it's it's, it's funny you ask that um we, we we do have a new book in the pipeline and currently i'm um i'm actually researching for a chapter on sport uh and the question i'm i'm i'm, I'm trying to get to grips with is 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 sport good for boys and essentially it is, you know, fitness and the mm. rest of it. But there, there are some very worrying links, particularly with participation in team sports, with sexual uh, sexual violence, sexual aggression, sexism. Um, and aggression alone. Aggression, toxic masculine behaviours. And so 
you mentioned coaching. How can we coach? There are sports coaches now. They're increasingly getting in touch with us after reading the book who are really buying into this idea of, of tender masculinity and, and you know, developing boys that are kind and vulnerable when they need to be, uh, the kind of boys that, that, that bring, each, bring others up rather than put them down. And for a lot of PE teachers and sports coaches, this idea of tender masculinity somehow hits them a little bit harder because they are so used to seeing even in you know secondary school sports teams these 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 masculine toxic masculine behaviors so routinely really um and so there are lots of PE teachers getting in touch you know speaking to me about how they're they're actually um using the dressing room as a vehicle to to cultivate this kind of tender masculinity. So whereas before, you know, the team talk at the beginning might be, right, let's go out and, and smash those pussies on the other team. Now it's, look, what are we going to do to win, all right? And what are we not going to do? How are we going to be good winners here? If we win this game, right, how are we going to treat the opposition? And if we lose, what are we going to do, you know? And so I do, I, I mean, it's something that I'm, I'm still looking into. But yeah, it's hard. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you this: this this guy David Sharkey, he's he's been doing a lot of work um, with a rugby. He's an English teacher. He works with a rugby team, um, and he got fascinated by this. And after every game, he'll he'll get the boys in the um, in the locker room, and he'll ask them how they're feeling. Yeah, you know, angry, pumped up. Um, and what he'll do that then is he'll get the kids to talk about those emotions, but then he'll say, "Are there any other times to?" day or this week or not in the sports um, field or, or in the locker room where you felt like this um, and he says it's just amazing the way that the boys open up um, another great thing he's he's experimented with is whenever they have training sessions um, there are these kind of three coloured flags a green, an amber and a red flag and as you walk onto the training ground you choose to walk past either one of these flags so you go through the green flag if you're feeling fine, the amber flag if you're feeling a little bit anxious about something, or the red flag if actually you, you, you think like you, you're really struggling and you'd like to talk to someone. Um, and it's a way of boys expressing their vulnerability um, and their mental health issues, but without actually having to, to initiate the conversation. And what you'll find is that you know the boys that walk through the orange flag or pass the red flag, the other boys on the team will... We'll just look after them a little bit more. You know, there'll be a few extra pats on the back. There might be a quiet word or conversation when the ball goes out of play. But also the coaches on that training pitch can see, you know, who's brought through the red flag. I'll mm. go and talk to him later and see how it is. I think that's an absolutely um, a wonderful kind of initiative. It is. It is. And I, I like I think that there's a whole nother, uh, like you said, there's a whole definitely a whole nother chapter, definitely a, an entire book to go into there uh, and maybe when that book comes out we'll have you back on to talk about that one but for now uh, Matt Pinkett thank you so much for doing this uh, it's been episode. a real pleasure it's been such a fun chat and uh, I wish you all the very best in your lockdown and uh, good luck with uh, writing this new book thank you well done stay in touch so there you have it the final episode of season two of Men Behaving Better 
what a way to go out with Matt Pinkett. He is on social media. You can find him there, Mr. Pink. And please do go buy the book, Boys Don't Try. It's an unbelievable read. And I still I go back to it again and again, particularly the ideas of tender masculinity and just the need for us all to admit our bias and accept that we make errors. And, you know, there's bigger subjects there that aren't applicable to me right now, but maybe in the future or maybe to you if you're an educator or a parent. Or maybe you're not. Maybe you just want to understand your your siblings or your 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 distant relations a bit better. It's a it's a must have. It's called Boys Don't Try. It's an incredible book co-authored by Matt Pinkett. Massive thanks to Matt. Massive thanks to all of our guests across this season. If you enjoyed it, if you want to hear more, contact me, Irishmanabroadpodcast at gmail.com or come over and sign up to premium patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad for the price of a fiver you get access to the whole lot absolutely everything but I, I really am indebted to all of you for the beautiful emails you've sent me the support you've given me in pushing this thing forward and I'd like to continue doing so so if you think that there's someone or something we should cover in season 3 please do let me know irishmanabroadpodcast at gmail.com my thanks to Brian Conley for his production to Tina and Mikey for making all this possible and to all of you for rating commenting subscribing and listening I will see you for season 3 very soon stay safe take care of yourselves be kind thinking of a master plan step with the record step with the record thinking of a master plan this ain't nothing but sweat inside my hands So I dig into my pocket all my money spent So I get deep up, still coming up with lint So I start my mission, leave my residence Thinking how could I get some dead presidents I need money I used to be a stick-up kid So I think of all the devious things I did I used to roll up, roll up, roll up I used to roll up, roll up, roll up